Welcome in to Chasing Interesting. I am your host, Craig Hoffman, and today we focus on something that we actually haven't focused a ton on on this podcast, even though it's typically at the center of our discussions. That is the American right. Uh, Who are they? What do they believe? What drives them to do the things that they do? Obviously, a radicalized portion of them in no small numbers stormed the Capitol in an insurrection a mile from where I was last Wednesday uh, in my girlfriend's apartment. So that's that's great. Uh, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about uh, what Democrats could do better and, and talking to Democratic politicians and strategists and um, a lot of, you know, what like what is the point of all of this? What is the good that could be done? And how could we go about achieving it? Well, today we focus on the other side of the aisle and we talk to Jane Coaston, who is a journalist and podcast host who focuses on conservatism, the right, white nationalism, and the Republican Party. And she has incredible insight into the multifaceted bucket that is the Republican Party. And I, I did think it was interesting. There, it, like, this conversation was fascinating and also frustrating in that we could have kept going and diving deeper and deeper into things. I, I think we did a good job of diving even further than the surface level of the baseline things that you'll find on Twitter. Like some, you know, the the reason you want to have Jane on uh, is because she is an expert. She has that deeper understanding, and we dive in farther, but. You know, any of the individual topics and questions that we talked about, well, they're all intertwined. So in some way it was a continuous flow of, of a singular idea, but it was also something where we could have just gotten narrower and narrower in focus and kept going on, on some of these things. Um, I don't know that like to a satisfactory end because a lot of this stuff is really frustrating, but um, there was like some themes that developed and, and I just think we could have talked for three, four, five hours, weeks, days, and and that makes sense for someone who has spent years covering this subject matter in depth. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a contact with Jane, of course, the show's favorite producer, Rachel, my girlfriend. Um, Jane is also someone who works out like like Ryan did at uh, at Cut Seven, um, and although we haven't had a chance to share the red turf uh, down there on Swan Street yet. Uh, she's someone who's in, in the circle of, of people that um, I know through Rachel and um, this conversation was great. Uh, so I was really happy when Rachel, who I, I now is definitely officially a producer of this podcast, uh, when, when she was like, you know, you should talk to, you should talk to Jane. And uh, Jane was was game. And so without further ado, uh, here's my conversation with Jane Coaston on All Things Right. All right, Jane, welcome to Chasing Interesting. I really appreciate your time, and uh, I look forward to getting together in the future for doing fun things unrelated to either of our jobs. Uh, But for today, we're going to focus on the subject matter that you have spent your career covering, uh, which has been, as we were just talking about before we hit record, a little too much in the news lately. Um, So I want to start with this very basic premise that we start, you know, everybody who's listening and, and our conversation from a general baseline of, who are we talking about? Like, who are modern Republican voters? Because I feel like that is a story that has emerged in the last week uh, since what happened to the Capitol last Wednesday and trying to understand who these people are that, you know, for those of us that have been paying attention and reading people's like your reporting, it's not very surprising. But for a lot of people, 
who the modern Republican voter is and who a Trump supporter is, is is fairly surprising. So who are they? So I think that's a really good question. And I, first of all, I really appreciate your time. I think that it's important to talk about this in a couple of different buckets. Uh, I would compare it to who would go to a Washington Wizards game? Clearly, there are people who go to a Wizards game who are fans of the Wizards. There are people who go just because they got tickets and there was nothing else to do. There are people who go because they actually really hate the opposite team and want to go watch somebody else beat them. They go. There are people who are there for any other number of reasons. So the, the, the modern Republican voter is a really complex group, so much so that it's actually important to talk about them as being a number of different groups. First and foremost, there's been a lot of recent polling showing that there are a lot of people who are voting for Republican candidates now, primarily on the basis of Donald Trump, which is why I think in many ways the Georgia runoff elections went the way that they did with Democrats winning both Senate seats is because while Trump did go down there and talk about how you should vote for uh, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, he also kept saying that everything was a sham and everything was a fake and actually and supported the voices of people who said you shouldn't vote at all in protest. There are there's been a lot of talk in Republican circles about, yes, Trump has brought in a lot of new voters, but a lot of those voters are there for Trump. They are not there to be giant Wizards fans. They are there for one specific player and they will leave once that player leaves. And so I think that that is a group that Republicans are growing increasingly concerned about. And there's been a lot of writing at conservative outlets about how we have to keep Trump voters, how we keep them in here. Though we can get into this a little bit because that seems reliant on an understanding that Trump voters are there for a political, pro- a political platform, for a political understanding and not for the person itself. Then there are the Republican voters who vote for Republican and always have voted Republican and for whom Donald Trump nor anything he's done did not prove to be anathema to them. So these are people who voted for George W. Bush, voted for Mitt Romney, voted for Donald Trump because it genuinely is a I just really hate the Democratic Party. I, you know, I understand what they're saying on these same these same things, but on issues like abortion, on issues involving tax reform, who knows? There are, re- there are reasons why they, they vote for Republicans first and foremost. And then there, I think, there are a lot of people who are modern Republican voters, more so in a way in which it is a, hmm, a cultural understanding of themselves as Republicans, mm-hmm. where which is actually, I think, where a lot of Trump's popularity came from, because... There was, um, if you do not follow conservative politics or conservative writing closely, you may have missed this, but in 2016, National Review, the uh, conservative magazine, did an against Trump issue. And their main objections to Donald Trump was that he was not a conservative. And many people who thought of themselves as being a conservative, who then voted for Donald Trump, basically were saying, we don't care. We just do not care. And so much of Trump's popularity among people who thought of themselves as being conservative it didn't matter that he supported "quote unquote" health care for everyone. I'm doing air quotes, which is very helpful on a podcast. Well, you called um, you called it out, so I think that qualifies. We're we're good. It's true. Everyone it's knows true. Jane very, did air quotes. It's true. Very visual medium. Um, <laughs> so so much of this is a understanding that the modern Republican voter and modern conservatism has less and less to do with conservatism as a philosophical concept. I've said uh, time and again that there is an idea of philosophical conservatism. There's an idea of what this meant. 
or means, um, whether that you're paying attention, you're going way back to Edmund Burke, to Russell Kirk, to William F. Buckley, who was the founder of National Review. These are people who put a lot of thought into what philosophical conservatism would look like even in the 18th century. This idea of tradition that what was is generally going to be better than what is or what is going to be. Um, a real value on standing. Uh, there's the famous uh, Buckley quote that standing athwart progress yelling stop is the job of conservatism. And there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, sounds great. And then Trump came along and it turns out they were not as emotionally tied to those ideas as people at the Heritage Foundation may have thought they were. So that actually leads to kind of a follow-up question that wasn't on my list, but is one I've thought about a lot um, that I think you'll be more than prepared to answer, which is, so Republicans are doing all of these things to try to conserve power. And obviously, you know, installing judges and things like that has been a huge uh, priority for Mitch McConnell, uh, if not his his driving singular priority. Um, but to what end that that is i know at some point like would be a good ending question for all of this but i just to what end because i know if democrats get power they want to give health care to people they want to right per, you know preserve and enhance people's ability to vote there's all these things that i go if democrats get control of government and they actually use the power given to them they will do good for people in these ways and what i don't understand is what republicans are trying to do besides hold on that's to the i power mean itself. i think that that actually it's interesting that you use the verb to do because the point of modern conservatism is not to do anything right the idea of doing something is actually anathema to modern conservatism because that would presume that the government was doing something and actually i think that that's in part why the Republican Party was so vulnerable to Trump because I think that many people who voted for Donald Trump were essentially saying, yes, we want the government to do things for us. We want the government to do things for us and maybe not for those people, but we want the government to do stuff for us. Mm -hmm. And we want, um, you know, so much of this, there's been a lot of writing on this, and I'll be interested to see eventually in about two years when we actually get the math on this, how much of an impact the promised $2,000 checks and the fact that you had Republicans saying absolutely not on, especially Mitch McConnell saying no on that. Because as people have said, just giving people money is an amazing voting tactic. Like if Democrats did that you know, all the time, they would probably win. And conservatives, a lot of fiscal conservatives especially, were like, but that's just wrong. And then Trump was like, actually, yes, this is awesome. This is fantastic. And I think that that's where you see a lot of the populist conservatives coming out and saying, like, no, we should have an actual idea of what government looks like that we would do. Because just simply standing athwart progress, simply being a reaction to progressivism, trying to stop Democrats from doing things, because the idea that... Um, of putting judges into office on the bench is not just because you did that, because the idea is that those judges would then rule against progressive concepts, progressive ideas. Right. Now, we've seen that that's not exactly how this happens. Um, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, because these judges are supposed to follow, like, a, you know, the Constitution. And there's a, a whole separate podcast we could do on conservative legal theory and how that has to do with um, whether you have a strict understanding of the Constitution, strict constructionalism, mm -hmm. or a, a loose understanding, um, whether or not you think the Constitution was meant literally, not seriously. Right. Um, 
But I think that there is an understanding among many conservatives that they existed as a means of stopping progressives from doing something. Um, a, a subject I've written a ton on is the idea of fusionism. Fusionism existed among the conservative and within the conservative movement from about the 1970s until um, like 45 minutes ago, where essentially it was libertarians, conservatives, paleoconservatives, fiscal conservatives, big war hawks, all saying that like, we all hate each other, but we hate communism more and we now hate the left more. So, so much of that was, I mean, I've, I've said this before that actually the Republican party functions at its absolute best as an opposition party. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a, actually an interesting article in National Review, I think, today, which is, I went to, what day? It's, I it's actually, actually no only idea. Monday somehow, Jane. It is Monday. Oh, my God. Oh, my but God. But when Wednesday that feels like the apocalypse, news. what are the days that follows anyway? I know. I know. That's horrifying news. Anyway, there's a fascinating article that just came out about how if we were in the United Kingdom, being an opposition party would be a fully fine thing to be because that would just mean that you're the party out of power and your entire job is to yell at the party that's in power and make them sad. But <laughs> in the United States, in with, a, with bicameral legislatures, that's not really possible. And yet the Republican Party has for so long existed as an opposition party. Ted Cruz um, essentially shutting down the government in 2013 over the issue of replacing, repealing the Affordable Care Act. And then it, we come to 2017, and it turns out no one has given any thought to what a replacement for the Affordable Care Act would be, because they didn't have to, because it was just something you could be against. Being against something is and was and is considered to be a political project in and of itself. And so you'll see some conservatives come up with like, well, you know, we want to stand up to China. We want to um, change trade deficits. We want to do these specific things related to um, abortion law, for example. But you can't get all of them on board with this. You can't get the fiscal libertarians and free, free markets people on board with the we need trade barriers to protect the working class on board with the we care deeply about social issues on board with the, actually, we don't care at all about social issues, people. The only thing you can get them on board with is we all hate these other people. And so I think that the entire construction of what is the Republic, Republican Party to do? What is it for? That's been the real challenge here, because if you don't have something to be against, the Republican Party isn't quite sure what it's supposed to be doing. Right. And I guess that would that explains a lot in some ways, because then to, to just kind of tie up my mental loose ends and react to, to this, however, you know, fill in gaps that, that I leave. But that means, you know, if you're then trying to hold up, if your argument is basically like, we're not for anything, we're not going to change anything, that inherently means what we have now is what you want. When what you want is actually not working for people, that's going to cause resentment and that is a deep flaw in the plan so that then right. leaves also the only op the only thing to unite around this opposition to someone else which is obviously when you literally have nothing else going to intensify over time and that that leads us to where we are now yeah um i'm actually going to quote here there is a national review article from last week um that i think i referenced on twitter but Twitter is a terrible place anyway. <laughs> so um, it's from a writer named Kyle Smith who wrote, the Republican Party famously has no agenda besides tax cuts. So what? 
Another way of phrasing that is that the Republican Party thinks the country is fundamentally fine and in no need of being remade into a European social democracy. Now, obviously, many people would disagree about the European social democracy part, but also I think a lot of people would disagree with the the Republican Party thinks the country is fundamentally fine part, because so much of the Trump's entrance was saying, you know, that the country is a hellhole and everything needs to change. And so much of what Republicans are saying right now is that the country is a hellhole and everything needs to change. And so much of what everybody is saying is that the country is in some ways a hellhole and everything needs to change. And it just seems to be this one tiny sector of conservatives that are like, everything's cool. We're fine. But if they're the ones in the Senate that have power, then like that's going to cause some serious issues. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, again, that that gets into how much of... I've written about this before, but how much of modern conservatism is based on a elite, and by elite, I do not mean elite in the way conservative writers mean it. I mean, like, the people in the House and Senate and the people who are working for big-time think tanks. Their understanding of what conservatism means, which is to stop the progressives from doing things, and the people who vote for them, who are being told, in many ways, a very different message, but also do want the government to do things for them. They do want to be supported. They do want health care. They do want... Um, I remember after the 2016 election, Chris Hayes on MSNBC did a special in West Virginia, and he talked to a man who was, um, he had been injured while working in the coal industry, and he was like, I voted for Trump, but we need Medicare for all. Like, this is really hard on us. And it just is so much of like this is how this happened is that people wanted something from their government and someone who was willing to say anything made a lot of promises and so much of this is about that disconnect between what the people who are considered to be the arbiters of modern conservatism think and what the people who vote for those arbiters think so along those lines you have I think one of the things that is not given enough credit is how stupid some of these people are. And I'm talking about the politicians, not the citizens here. Like, right. I, like Louis Gomer is not a, a, not an intelligent human. And I actually think he believes a lot of this crap that he is spewing. Whereas Mitch McConnell is like, he's trying to play 3d chess and we can debate the, right. whether Mitch McConnell's actually smart or whether he's just shrewd and actually not as smart as he thinks think he is. That- but like my, my question ultimately is, and then you can, you know, fill in with whatever color you want is like, what percentage of the politicians that are in Congress now believe the misinformation and think that it's actually true? Think that, for instance, Donald Trump won the election versus how many are playing the game? I would say 92% are playing the game. I would also say that at a certain point, um, if it walks... Uh, there, uh, do you permit swearing Absolutely. on this podcast? I do. So uh, there's this... Uh, he's an attorney named Ken White. Uh, he goes by Popat on Twitter. Um, and he's very smart, and he writes a lot about First Amendment law, and he's a well-known defense attorney. And he has something called the rule of goats, which is that if you fuck goats ironically, you're still fucking goats. Right. And there are a lot of people <laughs> who are within this, epistru- this epistructure... Mm who are, they think, I believe, they think that this is this was what sells to their voters. If they said something otherwise, they would lose their seats because that would be terrible. Mm-hmm. I will never get over people acting as if they would die if they weren't in the Senate anymore. Like, right. they just would not be able to go on with life. It's um, one of the things, is a sidebar, I appreciated about Obama and his in his book that he writes a couple of times. There's just things that he said, and he's like, if I lose because of this, so be it. But, like, my job was to get here and do stuff. 
And, and yeah. there's certain and politicians like, that, that believe that and others that think that staying employed as a politician is the most important thing. Right. Or they're just desperately terrified of the people who vote for them. Um, but there very much is a sense in which if you are telling people that all this is a fraud, if you are um, palling around with people who are um, part of the quote unquote stop the steal people who attempted an insurrection on the Capitol at a certain point, like you're still doing it, mm-hmm. even if you're doing it insincerely, which in some ways to me is almost worse. Oh, 100%. And like, that's kind of why I asked be- the question. It's like, yeah, who I is want doing you this in be- bad faith? And who, like, Ted Cruz like, is a really say, smart person who's doing this 100% oh, yes. like, in bad I mean, there's, faith. There's a reason why I think uh, Senators Cruz and Hawley have attracted so much ire. It's because right. we're well aware they know better. Right. Like, even if they don't know better, that is the the worst thing anyone has ever said about Ivy League law schools in or Stanford in many a year. Right. But... So much of this is like, if you're doing it insincerely, you're still doing it. And there are people, um, you know, the representative Paul Gosar or something like that, who are genuinely, I think, real deal, full on believers in this. But they also recognize that this is a message that is tailor made for two things. It attracts their base and it attracts the attention of their anti base. So much of this is of the like. I there's that onion uh, piece that's like Marilyn Manson going door to door to shock people. There's so much of this that is like, if you get retweeted by these people, even if they hate you, you're still drawing attention to yourself in such a way. Um, and I think that that's why there were so many people on the Capitol who were like live streaming, you like using their first name and first and last names in live streams, which the FBI is not that dumb. Um, but so much of this was about attention and being willing to get attention even from bad means because Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are well aware that none of this makes any sense. And even Kevin McCarthy has admitted to some reporters off the record that like, yes, I'm aware that Trump d- lost the election and, but we're just going to let him do this because mm, right. reasons. And so I think so much of this is like, it's a bad faith exercise, which I think makes it, I would much rather they genuinely for some reason believed that the ghost of Hugo Chavez helped Biden win this election, but they don't, and that's terrible. Well, and that's kind of, actually, I was focused more on those people with where I wanted to go with this, is like, I know Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are like selfish, self-serving, smart people playing a role. They're actors, um, and they're bad faith actors. But when you have 160 Republican congressmen voting to that there was fraud in election like i'm i'm actually more concerned and curious with how high up the group of people goes that believe this shit right i mean i think it would probably go far higher than you might like to think like i think trump believes it like he's yes he's i think that that is why um it's interesting because uh ross do that uh he had a really smart thread on twitter where he was talking about how there have been a lot of like fake promises that Trump has passed along, like the health care plan in two weeks or the wall or something like that. But all of those were things that other people believed, but he did not. But this is a conspiracy theory of which he is convinced and of which he is very, very much so emotionally entangled with. And so I think that that is something where... And especially because if you have if you have a party in which Trump remains far more popular than congressional Republicans, 
Congressional Republicans are well aware that they basically have to tell the emperor who has no clothes that his clothes look great. So it's a really kind of ter- it's a relationship that is based largely in fear and it's but it's fear of this of a this base which i think it's also important to note that there are a lot of people who i would say that there are a lot of people who vote for who voted for trump but they voted for trump for transactional reasons they voted for trump because he was going to do x because he was going to build a wall or because he would um appoint judges who would overturn Roe versus Wade um, or he would do these things. They did not have the same culty relationship. And I think we can call it that culty relationship with Trump. And so I think those understanding that understanding of who Trump is, is very different. And that's why you see some Republicans basically saying like, it's over, we're done, we're out. This is ridiculous. And then a lot of Republicans yelling at those Republicans because it's a different understanding. If you, if you think of Donald Trump the same way people think of, um, or the same way some Democrats think of Barack Obama, there are a lot of Democrats who were very disappointed in Barack Obama, who voted for him twice and were like, we did not get the things that we wanted done. And there are a lot of Democrats who love Barack Obama, but more as like a, culture to- a cultural totem, as an idea, as a person. And there are people who think about Trump, we got very disappointed, what did we get out of this? What all happened? And there are people who think of Trump purely as a cultural totem, that he is just this entity who makes people mad. He makes the people who make us mad, mad. He exists in this, as a separate sphere, as just this walking, talking middle finger to these people we believe we are simultaneously better than, but also desperately afraid of. So the question I am always trying to answer, it seems on this podcast, um, when I'm talking about politics, uh, is... How do people that believe, which would include myself, so I'm going to use we, how do we get people who like the policies that Democrats want to put forward to like Democrats? Because things like you you referenced earlier, the the guy in West Virginia who's like, man, Medicare for all, we need that. Yeah. But he identifies as a conservative, like you talked about earlier, like this cultural identity that they are a conservative, even though nothing they believe is in could be classified by the philosophy of conservatism. Right. So how, like, if you were to try to, as someone who has studied the right from a political standpoint, but you've also Mm -hmm. studied the the citizenry that makes it up and white nationalists and, um, you know, all all of that entire wing from moderate to whatever the hell wound up in the Capitol, like, how would you begin to try to break through some of those walls to connect the dots for those people who want the policies that Democrats are actually proposing? That if they would empower Democrats and vote for them in their states, like you could pass Medicare for all if you got, you know, two senators from Oklahoma, two, for, you know, another right. one from West Virginia, like, et cetera, et cetera. How, how would you go about trying to convince those people who believe in the ideas but also have some cultural attachment to conservatism that is nothing really more than a figment of their imagination? I think it's important to note that it's not even just a cultural attachment to conservatism. It is what I would term a cultural anti-attachment to liberals. Mm. Because if your entire understanding of this is like, yes, this is bad, but those people are worse. Those people, you'll note like so much of... Um, 
the Georgia runoffs, for example, were not about how great a Senator Kelly Loeffler was or how terrific David Perdue had been doing and like what their actual policy conceits were for the future. It was about how Raphael Warnock and um, Ossoff were crazed Marxists who were going to, I don't know, steal your cat or something. Like the idea, (laughs) I mean, we talk a lot in our field about the politics of fear and the politics of fear is tremendously effective. It works really well to tell people, people will vote against something very easily. One could even argue that in some ways Biden won, not just because people like Joe Biden, but because really people fucking hated Donald Trump. 100%. And so I think that the the challenge is going to be that there are people who, even if they agreed with every aspect of a Democratic candidate's philosophy, they would believe that, like, well, what if they just turn into Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and I'm afraid of her because of X reasons, because there's been so much focus on her in conservative media? What if I'm afraid of like the Democratic Party writ large? What if I'm afraid of the left, whatever that means? What if I'm afraid of Antifa or something like that? And so I think the challenge will be we are an intensely... We've always been a very polarized country. I think that there are people who will tell you that we, at one point, we were not intensely polarized, but the examples that they used took place at a time of Jim Crow, where, like, the large seg- swath of the population was excised from the political conversation in completely. So polarization is not new. We've done this before. You know, the election of 1800 was a complete shamble fuck. But... I think that the other thing is that party identification has become an ideological marker that's far greater than politics. There are people who, um, you know, I'm sure that we all know people for whom if you, if someone was like, oh, they are a ex member of X party that defines in some ways how you think about who they are or what they believe in. And in some ways, I think that that it's probably like, and I think that that intense party identification and party as ideal, like an ideological stance in and of itself. Like I'm a Republican, X, ergo, I do X. I'm a Democrat, ergo, I do X. Even if you have no attachment to what those parties do. The Republican Party didn't release a platform for 2020. It was just like the same one from 2016 plus yay Trump. And that was like, that was basically what they said during the convention. And so I think the challenge will be that you will have a lot of people who would absolutely vote for a Democrat if they were actually a Republican, even if you changed absolutely nothing about their um, like nothing about their stances. You, I think like Manchin, for example, in West Virginia, very well, there have been, there's been some talk about, oh, what, what if he changed parties and became a Republican? He's, I don't think he's likely to do so. He's been pretty out front about his distaste for the Republican Party and for, um, and his support for impeachment, a uh, second impeachment process. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't, even if we lived in a world where this didn't matter, if he changed parties, nothing about his actual views would change that much. Mm-hmm. Like he's a pretty conservative centrist Democrat. You see the same with uh, Kirsten Cinema in Arizona. Um, there's a there was is a group of Democrats called Blue Dog Democrats, like kind of centrist Democrats, where for whom if they and if you put them and Mitt Romney in a room, you could probably get like kind of around the same areas on a number of subjects that would probably surprise some people. But because of the importance of party identification and because of party identification as a personality identifier. I don't know what we do. I genuinely don't know. Like, I think that there's um, 
you'll you'll hear occasionally that there are the people who are like, well, like we there's that organization Third Way or people like people like we need to put you know people above party. And I'm like, yes, that's all very nice to think and say, but I don't know if we are actually have the we have we're at the point where we can do that. Right. Yeah. And there's also I think another group of people, and I think there's a lot of it in in my parents' generation where they don't want us like they want to look at when they're voting like i want to look at the individual candidates and it's like no no no, you're voting for a team like that's how washington actually works and and i think right. there's a lack of understanding of how politics actually works and how things get done that that influences it's a little bit of a different conversation but i, I think it's worth mentioning that like influences how people think about this stuff as well and that's how you wind up you know with oh that well i'm gonna vote for the guy that i want to have a beer with and it's like that's that's not yeah. who you want making your laws. That's who you want to have a beer with. And that those can be two very different right. people. There was some polling showing that, um, obviously, what happened in Georgia happened in Georgia. But um, there was some polling showing that a number of voters wanted re- the Republicans to keep hold of the Senate because they wanted to have... Um, I think that some people who are outside of politics have this idea that divided leadership, it would be a good thing for getting <laughs> things done. No. Which... No, <laughs> no, that's not how that works. I mean, like it's <laughs> I understand where that idea comes from. I in part blame the television show The West Wing for telling people that that's how politics works best. If people of different like, no, you need actually you need one party to have control and then you sh- you see what they can do. And um, as the writer Kevin Williamson made the point last week that the Republican Party had control of Congress and the White House and did nothing with it. They have they showed themselves to be incapable of power. And now it's up to Democrats to see what they can do in power. And that is something like that is challenging. But like divided leadership, there are many people who like gridlock. Those tend to be like centrist conservatives, because, again, the conceit of doing things is anathema to them. Yeah. And that kind of goes to um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, too, uh, where like you know trump has this example of like oh i'm against free trade and then basically signs nafta 2.0 and you know he says one thing and does another and eventually that catches up because like we all do live in the real world and like if i was going to posit a quote-unquote solution for this without like structural reform and things like that that i do want to talk about as well is is changing the incentive structure but like this is why I think it's actually really important for Democrats to go ham in these first two years when they have control of all three branches of government. Because if you can go and prove to people that you can do good and they see the good they do in their lives and you don't do what Barack Obama did, and I understand why he did it, um, but he was trying to act in good faith with a bunch of people who were not willing to act in good faith yeah. and negotiate and have a bipartisan process. Like, no, go get shit done. Give people health care. Give them $2,000 checks. Get the vaccine rolled out. Like, if you do those things and prove that, like you were saying, you're worthy of power, eventually reality is going to break through. Like, there's only so much that you can avoid the real world. Do you think that that is, is a way that potentially could, and it's going to take time, but crack through some of this information bubble that, that the Republican or the Republican voters and people on the right are living in right now, the Fox News, Newsmax, OAN, and God knows what else yeah. uh, information source? that their lived experience eventually essentially has to become different. Um, Or are they just going to be lied to so much about the causes that it doesn't work? Yeah. I think that that's, I I regret to say, I think that that's probably more the answer. Son of a guy. I think that there are, I mean, you would hope that eventually lived experience would get to people, but then let's realize that 
so much of this, you know, there's been a lot of the quote unquote economic anxiety talk. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's and it's worth noting here, uh, contra to an Atlantic piece on the subject, a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol saying it was 1776 all over again were actually pretty wealthy. They came here in private jets. They came here as sort of like a fun vacation. They came here having what they were not in need of $2,000 checks that they that the president they supported was in favor of, allegedly. And so I think that attempting to... Democrats can make a real material difference in the in the lives of people, but especially because the conservative movement has really centered, movement conservatism has really centered so much on the idea of things that they, on using th- culture war weapons as cudgels, th- culture, because cultural wars, you can't win them, but you can't lose them. Mm. So for example, even if everyone gets $2,000 checks and the economy is improved and the unemployment rate goes down, some college student somewhere is going to say something stupid. And then they're going to get fired from whatever internship they have. And then it's going to turn into a giant thing. And there's really nothing Democrats can do about that. And yet there will be some conservative outlet that's like, Joe Biden is responsible for this one person getting fired from a job because they said something stupid. And it's cancel culture all over again. Like, the means by which these processes work is almost entirely separate from what reality is or what the lived experience looks like. Because I think that so much of the language of right now, many swaths of the conservative of conservative media, and I want to be clear that this is not everywhere. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of really smart conservative writers who are making really strong points that have changed my views on a number of subjects. But there are people for whom the entire idea is that, yes, you might be doing, like, at any point you are at risk, at any point you you need to be constantly concerned about, like, some college you've never heard of doing something because this will eventually get, this will come for you eventually. And so I think it's whatever the material benefits that the Democratic Party can bring to individuals, I think that they will run up against the idea that those material, it's hard, you know, there's this thing that Democrats do, they were like, well, we have to focus on kitchen table issues. Republicans aren't focused on kitchen table issues. Republicans are focused on like, ensuring that new government buildings have to be, have to use neoclassical or art deco style or starting a 1776 educational commission, or getting really, really upset about, like, some random celebrity, or The View. Every conservative outlet has, like, one reporter they only task, apparently, with watching The View. And so it's like, I mean, it goes to the the Andrew Breitbart, you know, politics is downstream of culture thing, but it also is like, and at no point is there going to be a moment where, like, well, yes, you've won us over on this um, tax reform question, because these cudgels come from everywhere, and a lot of them don't make any sense. Yeah, my brain often hurts reading them. It's like, how? What? Fine. Uh, <laughs> all right, I have two more kind of big things to, to hit real okay. quick. The first one is obviously a huge story this week. A lot of the argument is being had in bad faith, but it's it's a really 
um, important topic in terms of tech reform and, and big tech and the places in which we all now virtually come together to speak and exchange ideas. And that is a whole separate issue um, where there's a lot of good faith arguments and good arguments on, on each side. But from a pure efficacy standpoint, if you look at the things that Twitter and Facebook and Apple and Google and everybody has done this week to de-platform Trump and, and a lot of other really harmful conservative uh, disinformation spreading platforms. Is that actually an effective way to combat some of this? Because it, you know, eventually, like if you don't have somewhere to communicate, you can't build the coalition, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it seems on a very basic level to see that this will at least be some crack, some blow to the cause. But but how do you see the the enforcement, uh, the actual enforcement of their already existing policies that these tech companies have have gone with this week? So I'm of a, a number of minds on this. And so the answer to your actual question is, I don't know. And I'll give you a couple of reasons. First and foremost, I want to be clear in saying that when people say deplatforming works, that is sort of true. For instance, there are a host of people who have been kicked off Twitter or kicked off social media whom you don't really hear that much about, and that really has done a lot for their power, and more importantly for them, for their ability to fundraise. So much of this entire movement is built on GoFundMe, is built on online um, fundraising, on numerous platforms that many of them have been since removed on. So from that perspective, it kind of works. I would also say that the outlet, the platforms that are doing so, that are removing these people, they could have done this a long time ago. In some ways, I'm glad they didn't. But I can understand why people are like, you could have enforced these policies a long time ago, and you didn't. And that's because I think that what Twitter or Facebook would say rightly is that, yes, we have policies, but it's the same way that, like, if you go to a restaurant and the restaurant has a policy and then Michelle Obama comes to that restaurant, they don't have a policy for Michelle Obama. Um, <laughs> I remember that... Uh, Rose's Luxury, they were saying that the only, like back in the olden days of Rose's Luxury, which is a restaurant in Eastern Market, um, where my, I actually got married there. Um, they used to have this thing where like, they did not take reservations. You had to stand in line unless you're Michelle Obama, because it's Michelle Obama, obviously. And so it's understandable that these websites would have a different policy for the president of the United States to say bananas things. But I also think that there's so there are a lot of arguments on that side of just being like, you could have enforced these policies. You didn't. Should you not have also used the precedent? It's complicated. What's happening here? Mm-hmm. I think that the so much of this is actually a financial question. You'll notice that um, so many of the people on the right who are complaining about losing followers on Twitter or being removed from these. It is not necessarily that they are worried about being about the deplatforming from a conceptual ideological basis but because of finances because they are being removed from financial platforms that allow them to fundraise so much of the um the stop the steal attempted insurrection that was funded on the internet that was people donating tens of thousands of dollars to send buses here all of the people involved who are now denying that they had anything to do with it but so much of this is a financial play and so much of this is Ted Cruz fundraising during the middle of all this happening, saying that I'm one of the leaders of this, please send me more money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that is something that's going to be really interesting to see what that looks like, how that impacts the fundraising that is capable that um, each of these entities has the capacity to do. 
And I also think that it is worth noting that the protections that are why Twitter and Facebook could remove Donald Trump are the same protections that are why Infowars can edit its comment section, the same, co- the same protections that are why Parler, the website that everybody's all mad about, its, um, its terms of service say that you, they can remove content or kick users off for rule violation or for no reason at all. Right. It also, ba- you know, they have the ability to do all of this because of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which is something that people are going to bandy about remedying or getting rid of. But these protections are available to websites that use user content. And so I think that it's important to get it that anything that you would do to this law that you think would be like, oh, we'll take we'll take back Twitter. It would, one, make Twitter unusable because there's no way anyone could handle that level of liability protections because Section 230 means that if you if someone says that if someone threatens my life, I cannot sue Twitter for someone threatening my life on Twitter. It, without that, the liability protections just would make almost any website that uses third-party content. Think about Wikipedia. It's user-generated. Right. That would make it completely unusable. It would disappear. Right. And so it's worth thinking about like what these web... A lot of this is being had in bad faith, and it should be very clear of that point. But it's worth recognizing that these protections exist for a reason and have existed to preserve the user-generated internet as we know it. And I think that one of the things that's going to be interesting is that there have been a host of people who have broken through in the Trump era who were doing so purely as bad faith entities. But it'll be fascinating to see where they go. Um, you know, during the um, birther conspiracy theory of the late of the late 2000s, there were a host of random birther celebrities who arose um, like Orly Tates or something like that. And then she just disappeared into the mists. And so a lot of the people who have gained so much credence through this because they have been tied so intrinsically to Trump and they've lashed themselves to Trump, so to speak, this is their last stand, so to speak. Um, I've said so to speak a lot. It's a tick. Sorry. Um, (laughs) This is their last stand. This is this is as far as they go. They don't have anything else. This is what they do. What they do is support Trump and yell at people who don't like him. And so I think it's really worth thinking about this as a financial question. The financial impetus for all of this is to make money off supporting this person and make money off being the person who gets right in the middle of the purity spiral surrounding this person of saying that you're the most MAGA, you're the most pro-Trump, you're the most whomever. And a lot of the people who are getting kicked off right now are the people who dove headfirst into that purity spiral and they're trying to support themselves by doing so and that's how grifters generally work is that they are the people who can identify a purity spiral and basically cast everyone else as being impure for not being as pure as they are and so i don't know what the results of this are going to be but i do know that the section 230 protections people are yelling about benefit all user generated content and a lot of the people who are getting kicked off right now this is more this is not a moral or ideological question it's a financial one all right, I know you have to go very shortly, but I just want to so like 30 seconds to a minute yeah. on two potential structural changes that could help. And then if you want to add another just like, hey, I think this would be a good one to think about, too. And I'll noodle on it uh, on my own <laughs> uh, on the political side of thing. Would ranked choice voting help and would it move to the national popular vote help? Because it would change the incentive structure of, of what it would mean to be. Elected. I think that. Ranked choice voting would help in some ways. I think that a, 
so if we're talking about ideas, I, I, I mean this in the most gentle and kind way possible, <laughs> but if we're talking about things that could actually happen, ranked choice voting, especially in um, state elections, is possible. National popular vote would require a whole bunch of things that are not going to happen. Um, so I would say that ranked choice voting would be helpful, especially because so much of how we, um, how we, th- it would also change how we think about our politics, especially, you know, when you hear people like, well, there were the best of bad options. Well, you could actually have a conversation about that. Right. Um, but I think that what's needed most in our politics is to think about it with clear eyes and good faith. And I, I wish more people would do that. I don't know if they do, but I, you know, I think that right now we're at a point in which you see people who want the same thing. You see people who want what gets me the most about, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time writing about conspiracy theories like QAnon. And what gets me the most are not, are that the people who are spreading this while knowing it's fake. And then the people who believe them, who believe them because they want to be, I mean, part of it is you want to be told something that isn't true, so you'll feel better, which, you know, at a certain point, I definitely come up with the, like, well, I'm not allowed to believe whatever I want, despite how bad it makes me feel. But you do see how much suffering comes from these belief systems. You do see the people who talk about, like, you know, my daughter won't talk to me anymore because I believe in this. Like, you know, people who have essentially endured a family separation of their own because of their beliefs in these types of conspiracy theories. And all of it is because they're trying to make sense out of something that doesn't make sense. And so I think that what I would what I would love to see is for grifters and the people who take advantage of those people to be recognized as that is what they are doing. That this is a grift, this is a con. This is a you know if there is a there's a financial element to this that I think that we don't t- pay enough attention to, mm-hmm. that there's like, you know, people are like, oh, why would they do this? They know it's not true. I'm like, why? Because there's money involved. And I think that that's what bothers me the most. And I don't have a solution to that problem, but I do think that recognizing how much of this has financial incentives is really important. That's a great, great piece of information. Uh, one that could launch us into another hour, but yes. uh, that's another time or another topic for another time. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Good luck with Absolutely. everything you're working on and uh, look forward to seeing you on the Red Turf soon. Perfect. Thanks again to Jane for coming on the podcast. Uh, a quick postscript, and I'm going to be completely transparent. I had this podcast printed to tape, if you will, ready to go. I was... I had actually already uploaded it uh, to my hosting service and I was typing the description and I wanted to circle back to something and talk about it a little bit on the tail end because it just bums me out. And that is when we think about how ultimately we can solve these problems and the fact that maybe more than I even gave it credit for you have people living in an impenetrable universe where they are so dedicated to a certain cause that they are blind to not only reality, but their own self-interest. And it goes to what we were talking about at the end, uh, but also something Jane talked about earlier in the podcast, which is you have this idea that the left is the enemy And that is the motivating force that unites conservatives, Republicans, people who identify as either. Um, 
and if someone like Joe Manchin switched parties. But not only that, if someone like AOC switched parties, that they would celebrate her because she said she's a Republican who hates the left, even if she was for Medicare for all and for universal basic income or whatever very socialist adjacent um, policy that these people are for. Because I always kind of thought, well, if you help people, then eventually they're going to figure it out. But if they just continue to consume lies about how they arrived at the reality that they're in, then that doesn't really help. But then then you start thinking, okay, well, there's an identity piece here that is clearly a part of this as well. And something that I wish I had the time to go in deeper with Jane with is not just this misunderstanding of who the American right is, which as she talked about, the people that came for the Stop the Steal rally were lawyers and cops and people who are in the middle to upper class of citizenry and have resources and money. And it's not like some dirt poor rural bumpkin that is a caricature of someone you see on the news. Some, you know, and I'm saying this like acknowledging that this is not a fair characterization of any human, but like the country bumpkin from West Virginia with like, that's basically a parody of what, of what that person is, what that stereotype is. That's not who, was storming the Capitol necessarily on Wednesday. But by the same token, on the flip side of that coin, what is really depressing is the misnomer of who the left is. Because I think if that could get accurately portrayed and who they're not, then maybe we have a chance at breaking the divide and bridging the gap. Because this idea that these are just elites, so to speak, that they sit in some skyscraper in New York or LA and look down upon figuratively and literally the rest of America over flyover country or whatever you want to say, whatever you know stereotype you want to throw is, is just not true. I think the average left-leaning person is a middle-class suburban like they're, they're me basically like it's me and my friends who went to college and are still going to pay a lot of money for it for years to come in, in student debt um, are working jobs that are enough to pay the bills but aren't necessarily rolling in cash i'm certainly not um it's that is is one group of the left and you have obviously huge huge majorities of minority communities but the reality is that the uber wealthy and the uber elite quote unquote elites a hell of a term like those people are republicans and that gets into a racial side of this that we really didn't touch enough on, um, which I will tell you now as this conversation is over is somewhat ironic considering um, if you've listened to this podcast, you know, race is an issue that I get into all the time and I'm not afraid to confront and understand that race cross divides any issue. Um, and, and I should have really, I guess, asked Jane more about that. Jane also happens to be a black woman, a black queer woman at that. 
Um, so she has certainly a unique lens through the social side of this, if you consider those things social issues um, and, and how they intersect with all the things that we talked about. But it, it's a way in which elite, rich, white people, mostly men, have been able to pit less financially successful white folks against everyone else but themselves, even though they're the ones with all the money and the power. And so that's like a huge part of this that we didn't even get a chance to dive into. But if, if we could somehow break through that, maybe that's the key. You know, this podcast is called chasing interesting. And, and the thing that I'm chasing, I find myself more often now is, is this like, how do you break through that wall? And I've, I've certainly said that before on the pod. So if you're a frequent listener, I apologize for the redundancy, but, um, it's something that as I was literally typing the description to put this online, I thought about um, is just who are we and who are quote unquote they and how did it get to a point that the stereotypes of who quote unquote we are and who quote unquote they are are so far gone from reality that were this divided and polarized in the information age. It's a lot easier to sell when you can't see. If you're told by successful people that this is the enemy, blah, 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 and it's 1942 and you're reading this in a newspaper or something and, or you know, hearing it on the TV or the radio from the only kind of people that have enough power and money to get access to get themselves heard on TV or the radio, that's one thing. We got the internet now. The information's available, and yet you could argue that it's worse now than it was then. Like Jane said, it's not so much worse because there's a part of the political discourse that was missing back then, but the outwardness of it all is is certainly worse now. So, there's not a happy ending here. Just ruminating some thoughts. And, um, yeah. I guess that's what I'm chasing next is continuing down that path. So, thanks again for listening uh, to Jane and to this rambling at the end. Uh, food for thought. If you want to shout back, by all means, on Instagram, at Craig underscore Hoffman. On Twitter, at Craig Hoffman. You can follow Jane on both at CJane87. That's the letter C, J-A-N-E, the numbers 87 on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks to Jane for coming on. Thanks for listening. And uh, also make sure you keep an eye on social media. I'm going to have some more thoughts uh, along these lines too in written form on my blog soon at hoffmanshow.com and I'll post the links all there. So uh, thanks for thanks for listening. Hope you, if you liked it, you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and uh, subscribe then. It's real easy. See you next time on Chasing Interesting. Chasing Interesting.